When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. In today's episode, we bring you part two of our live event, System Error. Should we fix capitalism or abandon it? Chief economics commentator at the Financial Times, Martin Wolf, and Greek politician and economist Yanis Varoufakis continue their debate on the future of capitalism. Part one of this event came out in our last episode and is available now to all our listeners. Do take a listen to that first if you can. Part 3 is available exclusively to our subscribers, along with a special bonus episode from our series Bright Sparks, where we'll be hearing from both Yanis and Martin backstage before the event on the creative ideas that make them tick. This event originally took place at the Tabernacle in London on the 9th of February 2023. Our host, BBC journalist and broadcaster Riddle Shah, continues the conversation from Part 1 with the notion that reform and change are always possible. Yanis, reform is always possible, change is always possible. We don't have to accept this techno-feudalism, to use your phrase, as it is. I don't accept anything. I don't take anything for granted. None, none of us are. The question is, firstly, what is the diagnosis? And secondly, what is the cure? My diagnosis is that uh, the emergence and proliferation of what I call cloud capital is... Um, sidelining the two major pillars of capitalism, which are profits and markets. If I'm right in this, then our policy prescriptions, a cure, has to adapt to this dynamic, if I'm right in this. Let me explain very briefly what I mean by this. I said before, I hinted at it by saying that Amazon is not a market. It looks like a market, because you go in there and there are millions of consumers and millions of producers, but it's not a market because Everything is mediated via an algorithm that belongs to one man. So when we think of markets, we think of the market down, which is the Lots basic of you know, sort of paradigm in our head. If you want to understand Amazon or Alibaba or any of these big platforms, imagine we were to get out of here, you know, in Notting Hill, and you, you know, we're walking down the street together, right? And we realized in this science fiction world that I'm creating for you now, that every house, every shop is owned by one man, and everything that's sold is going mediated through this person. And not only that, but as we train our eyes in the same direction, in the same shopping window, what you see is different to what I see. Mm. And what I see and what you see is determined by the same algorithm, which then sells us the stuff directly, bypassing the market. That's not my understanding of a market. That's my understanding of a thief, a kind of cloud thief or a digital thief that belongs to one person. Then you have rivalry, because there are many different thieves. You have Alibaba, you've got um, Amazon, you've got many different, but each one of them is a thief. Now, they were thieves under feudalism, and there was rivalry between them. In addition to this, Martin has written extensively and brilliantly about what led to the 2008 great financial collapse and how the responses have been so suboptimal as to 
create again a kind of rentierism that is um, detrimental to growth, to equality, to democracy, and so on. But there's a connection with my story about cloud, cloud capital. Because come to think of it, quantitative easing inflated financial assets, while austerity, not just, just George Osborne, but you know, European austerity, even American austerity, seriously diminished investment in productive capital. So you had this disconnect between liquidity, available liquidity was huge, and investment which was low. And that was one of the reasons why we had negative interest rates and low interest rates. The only capital that accumulated massively during that 13-year period between 2008 and the end of the pandemic was cloud capital. It was the techno, the big tech, that managed to take this capital and invest hugely. And that was at the expense of markets, if I'm right that Amazon is not a market, at the expense of traditional capitalism, at the expense of our democracies, at the expense of the concept of the sovereign agent, the liberal individual, because of the way that algorithms mess with, with our minds. Now, when we reach this point, can we still talk about a social democratic project of harmonizing taxation and therefore ameliorating the dynamics of inequality, of breaking up this company? How do you break up Google? The whole point about Google is you cannot break it up because it's an international thing. It has to be an international internet-based thing. It's not like Standard Oil. Standard Oil you know, could have been broken up easily because the rate of accumulation of the oil okay. did not depend on it being a whole. Marta, I'm going to let you come back on some of that if you'd like to, and I want to ask you about another exception that interests me. I don't see this in such um, catastrophic terms at all. To me, do I like Amazon? Well, I use it. I, I use it too. I didn't I ask you whether you like it. it. <laughs> There's a confession. It saves me immeasurable amounts of time. The products sure. are usually breathtakingly cheap. I don't think, I really don't think I bought anything that I didn't intend to because I come on to buy something. I'm really quite grateful that they deliver it to me and that I don't have to wander all over London to find it. Mm -hmm. Of course, I recognize this has very bad side effects on small businesses. But so did department stores, so did supermarkets. I recognize there's a difference here. I just don't accept it's that big. By the way, Amazon is not a particularly profitable company. Uh, and the... Because they're very good accountants. Yeah, they never pay tax well, because uh, they're never profitable. You can't, you, can't, you, you can't hide it that well. The, oh, they do. The, the, of course, they, uh, part of it, of course, is, is because they invest massively, and that's tax deductible to some mm -hmm. degree, but in, that's investment. A lot of that is investment in real things like warehouses, so forth. Finally, I'd just say this again, the, the degree to which people are manipulated, there are exceptions, of course. I think that's been a complaint ever since advertising first came. This isn't new, you know, the, the persuade, hidden persuaders. And it's true up to a point. But I've always actually felt that most people in the end mostly end up buying what they actually want and what they care about. And then finally, just look at what our economy actually consists of. The tech business is important, and they've certainly been remarkably profitable, the reasons I say. But actually, if you look at the, the sectors over time that in our economy tend to grow, relative to everything else, it's labor-intensive services. Mm. And the reason for that is all the other stuff has become so dirt cheap. 
you know, we've deindustrialized massively if you look at economic data because the economic system can produce the sorts of things that Amazon sells incredibly cheaply. That, some of that's problematic. And it's become a really small part of GDP. And Amazon isn't that big either. So I think that I understand the concerns. And I'm more concerned, actually, about Facebook than I am and that sort of manipulation than I am and its political role than I am about Amazon. Google is really very convenient. By the way, they bought an enormous number of companies, all of these entities did, which could, and those, those could have been prevented. It's more difficult to reverse, and we could have much more competition, and I'd be very happy to have Alibaba around too. But the idea that these people are uncontrollable by serious politicians, uh, 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 political forces, if they want to be the, to control them, that they basically run us all, that they have un, unimaginably huge profits which aren't, uh, you know, just beyond all computing in terms of previous businesses. I just don't think that's correct. I think there is a very important kernel of truth, and there's a very big danger that if we just let them do what they want, and there are lots of ideas, but I think that we are, the idea that we're suddenly in something where competition no longer applies. By the way, Google at the moment is absolutely terrified that, as I understand it, that the new chatbot mm, is going to destroy a lot of their business. Technology gives and technology destroys, and it has always done so. I'm going to turn the corner slightly, and I'm interested in both your thoughts on this, but Martin, if I can begin with you. You talk in the book about predatory capitalism, demagogic capitalism, but I wonder if, given where we are now, it's possible to speculate that it's the authoritarian capitalism of China that might actually end up triumphing. I think that's one, I, I of course, have a section, quite a number of sections on that fundamental issue. So where might we be going? And here I... I'm surprised Yanis might agree. So we have our limping and current very problematic democratic capitalism, but we, in some countries, at least, we still have elections. Uh, we still have an open process. We can still meet like this and say more or less what we think, and at least on these subjects. And we largely and, have a peaceful transfer of power. And we have a large... Now, what are the two, two alternatives we're seeing emerge? The first is what I, uh, I call autocratic capitalism. There are other terms. Uh, much of which nowadays doesn't come from coups against democracy, which were very common, uh, of course. But, and probably the most horrifying example of this process in history is Germany in the early 30s. Somebody gets elected. Uh, that somebody is an authoritarian. And that person basically eats out the whole democratic system from within, replacing independent institutions, electoral commissions, broadcasting institutions, which fully with people filling their people with their, their people, doing similarly with what the Russians used to call the power ministries, the espionage services, the army, the police, the, uh, the justice system. And lo and behold, after 10 years, 20 years of this, the person is a dictator and the, the system that started off as a democratic one has ended up as a dictatorship. And I think there's a pretty long list of this. And my view is 
there are things going on like in many countries, but the most important obviously is the US, which mm. look dangerously like this. Now, the other system we are seeing is actually really only exists in one or possibly two countries, namely China and Vietnam, which are the relics of the great Bolshevik revolutions of the 20th century. And it has to be said that Deng Xiaoping, who I do regard as one of the most brilliant politicians in world, leaders in world history, seeing the bankruptcy of that system, realized that he could marry these very powerful bureaucratic systems rooted in Chinese tradition, mm. they really, don't forget, really serious bureaucracy on a large scale they invented, more or less, um, can be allied to markets under political control. And he generated the most astonishing growth and transformation of any society ever and created a superpower on many measures, the biggest economy in the world. It certainly isn't democratic, nor would it pretend to be. But they can easily claim, despite I think they have very real economic weaknesses, that they plan longer, they can mobilize resources, both human and physical and anything else they want, on a scale never ever seen before. They can utterly transform their country in unimaginably short periods of time. So I'll just give you one example, which I, it sort of captures the difference between us and, and them in this respect. In about 20 years, they built 15,000 kilometers, I think that's the right number, of high-speed railway. 20 years, beginning to end. I won't get, discuss how they got the technology. They were very good and clever about that too. We are going to spend 40 years failing to build 300 miles north of London. Um, by the way, in America, it's even worse. Yeah. So our systems have got to the point they are so, this is a sort of Frank Fukuyama point, if I, I hate, probably shouldn't mention that name here. But anyway, that we have created a democratic system, one of whose characters is that we fail to control these people. And another of it is we stop ourselves from doing almost anything and running anything, anything well. So it is perfectly imaginable that 20, 30 years from now, China will be the dominant system in the world. They'll still have about a billion people and lots of people around the world. And I think quite a lot of people in developing and emerging countries are already saying, that's the way to go because it works. That's, to me, that's pretty damn scary. Yes, putting aside the blip of zero COVID, China has to be taken into account when you think about any kind of reform of the way we do things. It's unignorable. Well, China is um, a central player in both the geostrategic realm and also economically, ideologically, culturally, in every way. Martin, you, ha you have this belief that capitalism and liberalism and democracy are natural allies, they go hand in hand. Well, maybe they did in Amsterdam and in Britain. But what you described regarding the autocratic capitalism of China, this is not just a Chinese phenomenon. Uh, the way that capitalism emerged in Prussia, in Germany, is very similar. 
highly illiberal state that decided at some point we're now going to emulate the British because we're falling behind and we're going to have capitalism, state-controlled capitalism. And you can see the repercussions of that even today in Germany. Much before Deng Xiaoping, there was a certain gentleman called Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, an autocrat, dictator, who decided similarly that Singapore is going to become Singapore. Mm. Japan, after the Second World War, there was a semblance of democracy with the constitutions that the Americans authored for them. But if you look at the, my understanding of uh, the Japanese structure of finance and industry and the great industrial miracle of Japan is that it is in a liberal state using five-year Soviet-like planning with private ownership of the conglomerates. A very different model to the one that emerged on this island and in Holland. So China falls within that category. So you're saying it's uh, not an exception. It's, it's part of a pattern. It's, there, are two, two, there are many different kinds of capitalism, but these are two very important variants. Each one of them substantial, like Britain is substantial and Germany is substantial. And so is Japan, Korea. Korea was democratized 30 years after it became a market economy. Uh, so it wasn't the other way around. Uh, but the most important point I want to make, if I, if I, if I can. I see China, Chinese capitalism utterly symbiotic with Western capitalism. I do not see them as two separate things that evolve differently and clashing. If you think about it, yes, Deng Xiaoping made the decision he made. But this was also after the Nixon visit to China. And during the process of the financialization of uh, America, which was a repercussion of the fact that America had become a deficit country, and the American trade deficit was operating like a vacuum cleaner, sucking net exports primarily from Japan and Germany into American territory. Following the end of the convertibility of the dollar, the Europeans and the Japanese had to use the dollar as their reserve currency, re reserve for private banking as well. And in a sense, America was providing, through its trade deficit, the aggregate demand for German and Japanese factories, later Chinese factories. The profits of the German, Japanese, and later the Chinese capitalists were being recycled through Wall Street. And you had this amazing recycling process, and China fused into the American economy in this. So it was a bit of a Faustian bargain that didn't have necessarily conscious agents. Some of those, like Paul Volcker, were cognizant of what was going on. They had a good understanding, and they approved of what was going on. So basically, the deal was we will shift, <laughs> America in the West will shift its industrial uh, base to China. Chinese surplus values and profits, however you want to define them, are extracted locally and are being realized through the aggregate demand produced by the American trade deficit. And the profits of the Chinese are invested in the things that the American government allowed them to invest it in, which is US treasuries, real estate, and whatever companies they allowed them to buy. And it wasn't, it, this was very eclectic. So in, in other words, do you, do you see what I mean? I see Chinese capitalism, state capitalism, authoritarian capitalism, call them what you might, 
American capitalism and Euro European capitalism completely symbiotic. I think there are two important points. The first is that really in every case, democracy followed economic development. Um, Korea, Britain is itself, you know, you talked about the emergence of capitalism in the late 18th century. I mean, it took basically 100 years before this country could be regarded as even borderline democratic. And America, I mean, it's, this is pretty well universal. So I, my, my argument in my book is that is indeed the process. I accept two it's absolutely clear that late-comer countries, this is well decided, countries that come tend to try to accelerate their process of learning through state influence. And I would emphasize the state more than the capitalists. This is, there is a state role, as there's no doubt about it. It's much more difficult for early performers like us to do that. And the third point I would make is I think that Yanis is suggesting, is arguing, that the essence of this is a bargain among capitalists. But my view is somewhat different, that this is a bargain among states in which capitalists were very powerful, but we are now moving, just as this wonderful example, Prussia and Germany and Britain, to the, the point, and this is part of the really dangerous world we're moving in, in which what is going to dominate this process is not capitalists who don't really like what's happening now at all, but straightforward power rivalries among states. And that uh, is what happened between Germany and Britain in the First World War, and then, of course, Japan, Germany, Britain, and America in the Second World War, which, and this is clear in my book, Wars are enormous factors in these stories, but I suppose one of my main points at the end of this book, it, that is something which is very likely, much bigger danger, I think, than these networks of capitalist power, is that we'll end up in global war. And Cheerful. our reaction to their autocracy and their reaction to our increased suspicion is a very powerful and dangerous force. Gosh, that's a big thought. Right, I'm going to be a little bit trite now. I apologise. I want to get to questions. So the title of this discussion was Should We Fix Capitalism or Abandon It? So very briefly, in a minute each, if you like, Yanis, are we fixing or are we, are we abandoning? I think it's the wrong question because capitalism is on the way out. No, no, hang on a second, folks. Challenging the question is always the rational thing to do. Because if you are railroaded by the wrong question, you will never get to where you need to be. My view is that capitalism is dying. And there's nothing we can do to save it. Because of the rise of a new form of capital, which after 2008 has been turbocharged by QE, creating circumstances that are leading us to something much worse than capitalism and much worse than authoritarian capitalism. And to create again defenses for liberty, autonomy, and markets, we need to go far beyond taxing and regulating. We need to look at property rights over the algorithmic cloud capital, over natural resources, and we need to find ways to create room for decentralized decision-making and autonomy within a new framework of international cooperation. I think that 
we already had this discussion, Martin and I, in the Green Room, we need to go back to the kind of International Monetary Fund that John Maynard Keynes was envisaging in 1944 with a digital currency, and I think we need central bank digital currencies bypassing private finance. Martin, are you fixing or are you abandoning? Well, I think actually that most of that's quite conservative as far as I'm concerned. I mean, in the sense that in the, if Yanis, I mean, he's not going to get this program through, obviously. It's not going to happen, but he's welcome to try it. But if he did that, basically, I'm in favor of land taxes. Uh, I'm, uh, that's a big deal, and other natural resource uh, taxes. I have a, what I think it would be, I'm not, I have no objection to central bank digital currencies. I have a, a, what I think is a more radical approach, but people here might think it's a cop-out, but it isn't, is to, uh, on the financial sector, which is simply to eliminate all tax deductibility of interest. Now, that will change the financial world. Uh, incidentally, it will kill private equity, which I would be quite happy about. <laughs> now, the, but that's a small thing. Third, I agree with him that there is a very clear problem, I've already discussed this with the tech sector, but I think it's politically manageable within, an, um, if you like, a broadly ameliorationist framework. I point out that in the first half of the 20th century, I just focus on that, in the US, largely as a result of the two Roosevelts, the system embedded in which capitalism was embedded was quite fundamentally transformed. I don't see why we can't do that again. And in the end, uh, whether we call this capitalism or not doesn't worry me at all. The word I use it because it's common. Decentralized market processes will continue. Politic, democratic politics can, I believe, survive. And they can survive by making these sorts of changes, which will be very difficult, and we can basically preserve continuity of more or less civilized life. That's what we want to do. We don't want a colossal breakdown of everything. So I'm much, ultimately, to my surprise, I'm much more optimistic. But in any case, we have to try, because where I think we agree is for different reasons, we don't like where we are and we would like to avoid going where we seem to be going. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. The third and final part of this debate is exclusively available to our subscribers who can access all episodes ad-free now, along with a bonus episode of Bright Sparks, where we hear from both Martin and Yanis on the creative ideas that make them tick. This event was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay, with editing by executive producer Rowan Slaney. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or find us on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. Thank you.